Predicting what America's economy will do next is a very tricky business. It is so dynamic. There are so many factors to consider, especially when it comes to inflation. Leo Feller is senior economist at the UCLA Anderson School of Management, and last year he made a forecast that higher inflation would be temporary. After all, inflation had been just 1.6% in 2020. It appeared the pandemic would ease with vaccinations. Well, then came the figures this December, and inflation turned out to be 7% in 2021, the highest level in 40 years. Hello again, I'm Mormon Olney, joined by Leo Feller on How the World Works, a podcast at the UCLA Anderson School of Management. Leo Feller, welcome as always. Warren, thanks so much for having me on. Uh, you are not the only one who made a mistake. Pantheon Macroeconomics uh, predicted there would be 850,000 new jobs in December. Turns out there were less than a quarter that number. What's happening? Well, so a lot of us made mistakes with economic forecasts this past year. Myself, several business economists, the Federal Reserve. This has been a very weird time in the economy and in trying to predict consumer behavior and how the economy would recover. So there's some good news elements, right? We got some things wrong that have turned out to be much better than what we expected. Unemployment is now down to 3.9%. We definitely did not see unemployment recovering so quickly. Now, granted, a lot of people have just left the workforce. We're still down 3.6 million workers than where we were before the pandemic. But still, the employment recovery we got was just so much faster than anything that we expected. The flip side to that is that we also got much higher inflation than we expected. And, you know, a part of the story, we always knew that there was going to be some ramp up in inflation. In 2020, inflation was only 1.6%. And that's because you had prices for things like restaurants and hotels and air travel all decline. And so we knew that there was going to be more inflation in 2021 as some of these prices recovered. But the 7% inflation that we got was something much more than many of us had expected. And when you break it down into the subcomponents, it's really driven by two factors. Factor number one has to do with vehicles. And factor number two has to do with energy. And vehicles and energy together account for about three and a half percentage points of that 7%. So half of the inflation that we saw is just because of vehicles and energy prices, right? So it's been a very dynamic economy. We did not foresee that there would be this kind of supply constraints in vehicle production that in part have to do with just the pandemic continuing. This fact that it's so difficult to make calculations and uh, that everybody is making mistakes, is that all due to the pandemic? So a lot of this is the pandemic, right? If you look back to where we were in December of last year, we had just received news about the Moderna vaccine, the Pfizer vaccine. In January and February, you started getting you know, people over the age of 65 and people with comorbidities being vaccinated. Then people started getting the vaccine in spring of 2021. What we expected to happen was that people would go out and consume services and that people would ramp down their consumption of goods. Instead, what happened is that we had a lot of vaccine resistance. We had a Delta wave over the summer. We're having the Omicron wave right now. 
And we've had continued waves in the rest of the world. Like it's turned out that the Chinese and Russian versions of the vaccine just haven't been as effective as the Moderna and Pfizer vaccine. And so what that means is, you know, two things. One, here in the U.S., people continue to buy a lot of stuff and not demand a lot of services. We still have seen delays in people going back to offices. And so that means that people are home more. People are buying more stuff for their homes. People are doing more home improvement projects. All of that just means more demand for goods. If you look outside at the ports of Los Angeles and Long Beach, there's 20% more container ships coming through. The amount of stuff coming through is so much greater than anything we've seen before. So that's part one. We're just buying lots of stuff. Part two that happened is that factories shut down over the summer in China, in Vietnam, in Thailand, in Taiwan. And so we didn't get the semiconductors we needed to be able to manufacture and sell cars in the US. And we didn't get the home furnishing supplies that we needed. And so we've gotten a lot of constraints at the same time that we have a lot of demand. And that just means that prices have continued to increase, whereas we expected that the pandemic would have come to an end and supply would have caught up and prices would have come down, you know, but for these other waves that we've gotten. And I take it used vehicles go up that much? Yep. If new vehicles aren't available, you know, what people are doing is buying used vehicles. And so, you know, you've seen used vehicle prices go up by something like 30 something percent over the course of the pandemic. And just now you're starting to get indications that as new vehicle production has started ramping up, as semiconductors have become more available, as GM and Ford and Volkswagen and Toyota have brought their factories back online and they're producing again, you've started seeing some decline and some reduction in demand for used cars with used car prices starting to stabilize. But this we expect in the coming year will pull inflation down, right? This was such a large component of inflation that it has in a sense run its course over this past year. And as car production ramps up, used car prices should start coming down and that will bring inflation to levels that we're more accustomed to. But is that going to require unloading all of those ships that uh, have things on board that are needed for vehicle production? So that will also require us as consumers to get back to going to restaurants and going to entertainment and engaging in nightlife and shows and sports. And once we do those things, that means that we are not sitting at home and buying all this stuff that is coming on ships. It turns out that semiconductors really have nothing to do with what's going on in shipping. Semiconductors come in on airplanes. You know, the, the issue really was that the factories in Asia had to shut down because so many workers were getting sick with COVID and they had, you know, a zero tolerance policy for COVID in China and in parts of Taiwan. And so they really had these larger factory shutdowns, which means that we didn't get the production that we needed. There's the flip side, which is we also just bought a lot more computers and a lot more video games and a lot more Apple iPhones and iPads. And that competes for semiconductor production as well. And so it was hard for the cars because we went out and bought so much more technology and TVs and other stuff that uses semiconductors. And there's only so much capacity for semiconductor production in the world. So you said that vehicles plus energy were one half of the 7%. What about energy? Everybody's paying more for gasoline. There's a lot of complaining about that. Yeah, no, that's a good point. So if you recall back in April of 2020, oil prices briefly went negative right? You were paying maybe a dollar a gallon during the height of the pandemic. So, you know, what happened during that period is that you had a lot of bankruptcies of oil producers in the US. 
there was a period in April of 2020 where oil producers in the US were actually paying refineries to take their oil. That's because it's really hard to shut down an oil well once it's running. It's costly, it's burdensome, it's damaging to some of the oil drilling equipment. And so oil producers have to keep pumping, but they were running out of space and barrels in which to store all of the oil that they were producing. And so they actually had to pay refineries to take oil off of their hands. Now, not surprisingly, we had one of the highest rates of bankruptcies of oil producers in the US over 2020 relative to the past 40 years. That really knocked out a lot of our US oil production. We used to be self-sufficient, right? We used to actually be a net exporter of oil right before the pandemic. And you know now we are a net importer. We're still not producing as much oil. But when oil prices are really above $60 a barrel, it makes sense for most of the US oil production that had existed prior to the pandemic to come back online. Right? It's essentially profitable across the board for the oil producers that existed in 2019 to be back in pumping oil. And so the expectation is with oil at it's currently $80 a barrel is that you're going to have this increase in oil supply. It takes about six months to get wells back online. But the expectation is really that there will be more supply to meet this amount of demand that we have. And it's possible that we'll get oil at $100 per barrel as demand outstrips supply. But really, by middle of 2022, we should have enough oil production in the US so that oil is about you know, $60 a barrel, which is where it was you know, right before the pandemic hit. What about the competition that comes from renewable sources of energy? How does that fit into the whole question of inflation? Or is that too complicated a question? So this will take some time, right? You've seen electric vehicle demand increase, right? There's going to be a, a substitution. It's going to take a little bit of time you know, for consumers to move from gas powered to electric powered vehicles. And over time, that should reduce the demand for gasoline which means that oil prices will eventually start coming down just because you have this shift of people demanding less gasoline for their cars. But that's not going to happen you know, within the next year when we're thinking about what will inflation be like going forward. This is really a four, five, 10 years out type of time horizon for electric vehicles to really substitute for the amount of gasoline demand that we currently have. Okay, so if vehicles and energy are half of the 7% inflation, where's the other half? And how much of it has to do with corporate profit? Yeah, so the other half, right, that's 3.5%. You know, the big things that are going on there is what's happening to housing costs. We've seen house prices go up really near record rates over the past year. You know, that translates into higher rental costs. There's something called owner equivalent rent, which is even if you own your house, what is the value of the housing services that you're getting from owning your house? And so all of that has fed into inflation. The other piece that we expect will start to come back is inflation and healthcare costs have been very subdued as people have delayed preventive treatments, if they've delayed colonoscopies and mammograms. And, and so you know, really, as people go back and start getting the healthcare that they need and that they've delayed, healthcare costs should start increasing. So there is this concern that the nature of inflation is going to shift from being about cars and being about energy to being about housing and being about healthcare 
and maybe being about education is, you know, when schools come back in person, that there will be more demand for in-person schooling. And so that might fuel higher inflation costs in the education sector. So the nature of that might itself shift. And what becomes inflationary in the coming year uh, is likely to change. And we'll still likely have inflation above 3%, just as the economy comes back to a more normal non-pandemic situation where we're you know, mostly just uh, consuming less services. Do you think 3% is going to be very likely? That's really the new forecast is that we'll likely be somewhere you know, closer to the high threes, low fours for this coming year. Um, but really, there's, there's a trade-off that's important to consider, which is we've had more inflation but we've had faster economic growth and faster employment recovery than we might have had had we not had the amount of fiscal stimulus and monetary stimulus that we got. Well, that gets to the question of who's responsible. And of course, that's a political issue. Uh, the Republicans are saying that uh, Joe Biden's responsible for inflation. What are the pluses and minuses of that argument? So, I mean, fundamentally, I think the pandemic is responsible for inflation, right? We have to think about this as there is a pandemic that's influencing human behavior. We have all engaged in behaviors that have led to more demand than supply at certain periods of time. At the very beginning of the pandemic, it was toilet paper, right? We all went out and we wanted to buy toilet paper and we wanted to buy food to stock our pantries to make sure we were okay for the pandemic. Then, interestingly, the other piece that we saw rising prices during the initial phase of the pandemic was for comfort foods. Ice cream became more expensive. Those Oreo cookies that you were eating while watching you know, reruns on Netflix became more expensive. And so if you look at the inflation data, it does actually tell you a story of how the pandemic made us very coordinated and synchronized in our consumption patterns. We were all buying comfort foods for a period of time. We were all buying you know, more toilet paper and Lysol wipes for a period of time. And then once the pandemic let up, we all started going out and buying, you know, home improvement supplies to work on our houses that we were spending more time at. People wanted to move out towards the suburbs. People were buying more computers for their kids to be able to do homeschooling. And so fundamentally, it really is the pandemic that is influencing our behavior. And as the pandemic lets up, as perhaps Omicron causes COVID to become more endemic, and we've had more vaccinations and more immunity through exposure, hopefully this means that we get back to normal life and our consumption patterns revert to what our economy is capable of handling, right? Which is if people are going more to restaurants and more to downtown areas, then you know there is an infrastructure for that already in place. The infrastructure that isn't in place is for the amount of goods that we're consuming, right? Our economy just wasn't previously equipped to handle that. When you're talking about all this activity, you're talking about the upper reaches of the economy. Isn't inflation awfully hard on people at the lower end of the economy? So interestingly, people at the lower end of the economy did better in terms of the wage increases that they saw. And it has actually been faster than the rate of inflation, right? So leisure and hospitality, which was the sector that was most impacted over the course of the pandemic in terms of the number of workers who were laid off, they've seen wages increase by almost 16%, right? Relative to inflation of about 7%. And so when you put this together, people in leisure and hospitality saw on average real wage increases of about 9%. At the very top end, the top 75% of workers, their wage increases have actually been a little bit slower than the rate of inflation. So their real wages have declined. But 
what happened to people at the top end is that they own homes and they were able to refinance with fixed rate mortgages. And so they are actually paying lower mortgage rates for their homes right now, fixed mortgage rates of 2.75 to 3%. Uh, and as inflation is increasing, they're earning higher wages, but they have some of these fixed cost components that are becoming relatively less expensive. We saw a lot of inflation in asset values. So stock prices went up and people in the wealthier segments are the ones that own these stocks. And so they have benefited through this wealth effect, through the price of their homes, through the value of their stock portfolios, uh, and through lower payments on their home mortgages. So there really are segments of the population that have done okay through this inflationary episode that we've gotten. Let me ask you about the Federal Reserve. It has two things that it is supposed to do. One is to keep inflation low. The other is to keep unemployment low. Well, we've got 3.9% unemployment. That's about as low as it gets. What's the Fed going to do, do you think, about inflation? We've heard about the possibility of increases as soon as March. Are there going to be more than that? And how much are they going to be? The Fed has two mandates. It's full employment and price stability. Full employment means more than that 3.9% unemployment rate. It also means getting people back into the labor force. And we're still down 3.6 million workers because people have just left the labor force. Some of this is good news. Some of this is because house prices are up, stock portfolios are up, people can actually afford to retire. And we've seen this wave of retirements. And so there is a question of, will the Fed think that 3.9% unemployment, does that count as full employment? Or does what count as full employment mean getting people back who left the labor force, getting those people to come back in? So that's kind of the balancing act. Now, the 7% inflation rate, there's no one at the Fed that's happy with that. This really caught the Fed off guard. They didn't see this coming. It's detrimental to businesses trying to make forecasts. It's detrimental to consumption. We saw that recently in the December retail report where consumption went down. Because when prices are so high, people stop consuming, right? People get sticker shock. And so really the expectation is that the Fed is going to want to take some of the froth out of the economy that currently exists. And the way that they do that is twofold. One is that they stop purchasing as many assets as they've had. So the Fed has been purchasing treasuries and mortgage-backed securities, and they're expected to ramp down on that by March. And then after that, they're likely to start increasing interest rates. And we really expect at this point interest rate increases starting in March, and at least about three or four, possibly more than that, rate increases by the end of the year, so that by the end of the year, the federal funds rate, which is the benchmark interest rate, goes from about zero, where it is today, to about 1%. And then that titrates down throughout the economy. So that means that mortgage rates are probably going to go up from you know 3 to 4%. Short-term borrowing costs for firms are going to go up. And so that should slow down a little bit of this excess demand that we seem to have right now relative to our supply, and that will likely rein in inflation. How much do you think the interest rates will increase, and is there a possibility of increasing them too much? Yeah, so there is a chance that left alone without big changes in monetary policy, that inflation would work itself out, that because businesses are investing in increased supply because consumer demand might change from goods to services, that semiconductor production has ramped back up. So that knocks out the used car effect on inflation, that we would get lower inflation anyway, and that it wouldn't be necessary to increase interest rates. 
right? So there is this possibility that the Fed might act too aggressively. At the same time, that inflation itself would be going down just because of changes in consumption and production patterns. And so one of the concerns is that the Fed might actually prevent a faster recovery in employment. This is partly what happened back in 2015. And part of the reason that we had such a long recovery from the Great Recession is because the Fed began acting too aggressively and raising rates and really extending the amount of time that was necessary for the recovery. And that had some really difficult political ramifications. You had a lot of dissatisfaction back in 2015, 2016, in terms of a recovery that was really lethargic and that was really taking a long time to get people back into the workforce. And so there, there is a little bit of a fear of, will the Fed act too aggressively now and make it so that you know we have lower rates of employment for much longer than we would otherwise? Quickly back to politics in Washington. What if the Build Back Better bill is passed and there is a significant change in what the federal government is doing? How likely is that to impact inflation and in what way? So the thing about this plan, differently from you know the $1.9 trillion fiscal relief that we got in March of 2021, that relief bill was money all at once to households so that households could go out and spend and make sure that they could pay their rents, make sure that they could go out and purchase food. But it also fueled a lot of the demand that we've seen over the course of this past year. Build Back Better is really about phased support over several, several years, right? A decade. And so there shouldn't be a drastic inflationary impact right up front because it isn't an enormous sum of money that's being delivered right up front. It's money that's spaced out over the course of several years. And maybe, possibly, right now, if this money were to enter the economy, it would have a more stimulative effect at this moment in time. But you're really thinking about the longer term. How will you impact inflation in two years from now, three years from now, four years from now? So what's interesting about Build Back Better is that it's investing in the capacity of workers right? You're trying to make sure that you have uh, early childhood education. You're trying to make sure that families are able to deliver good experiences to their children so that we are producing more effective, more productive workers out into the future. You're trying to improve infrastructure so that our economy can be more efficient going forward. All of that in the longer term should reduce inflation by enhancing the productive potential of our economy. The short term might be inflationary. The long term should be disinflationary because it's enhancing supply. So we've heard a lot from Senator Warren about corporate profits, and they really are high. Tell us about that and the relationship to high prices. Yeah. So listen, this has been a record year for corporate profits. Corporations have had one of their best years, you know, really in decades. Part of the reason is that there's so much demand for their goods that they're able to pass on higher prices to consumers even though they're facing higher input costs, even though they're paying higher costs for things like labor, for things like materials. What we've generally seen when we've had years of very high corporate profits is that corporations then use those profits to move forward and invest in increasing supply. And so what we really think might happen with these higher corporate profits is that Corporations are savvy enough to know that they might not be able to have, you know, sustained pricing power into the future. 
they will go out and they will build and expand their facilities so that they can actually provide more output to cater to the amount of consumer demand. And that really should help prices stabilize going forward. Are they gaming the system? Are they pushing too hard? I think they're doing what the system really intended to allow them to do, which is there is an amount of demand out there. Corporations have an amount that they can supply at a given point in time. And prices are what bring the system into equilibrium. You know, there's this saying, nothing cures high prices like high prices. If corporations are going to raise prices, consumers are going to have sticker shock and they're going to consume a little bit less. And we're seeing that right now in the latest retail spending reports is that consumers are pulling back. And so it's kind of this delicate dance. Corporations can try to increase prices, but consumers, as long as there's enough competition between where they can shop, what they can buy, they can substitute away pretty easily and punish those that pass on higher prices. And we are really in a world where consumers have a lot of options, right? They can shop online, they can shop in person. They are, you know, an enormous number of different products and variety of products compared to where we were in the 1980s. It's called stock keeping units, SKUs. The number of SKUs that identify each individual product has more than doubled since the 1980s. So we just have more choices of products to be able to go out and buy. And what that means is that if prices are higher for one product, we can say, all right, I'll just get this other close substitute instead. And then finally, after all that you have said and all of the fascinating things that you have told us, is there still a concern about the pandemic? And might it just throw all these calculations off? Absolutely, right? So this is what has caught us off guard uh, you know, every single time is that we didn't expect the Delta wave, we didn't expect the Omicron wave. Right. If you look back at history, 1918, that pandemic eventually became the regular cold and flu over a matter of time. And we don't know if COVID is going to have yet another wave that might be very severe and might cause people to maintain their current consumption patterns of more goods, less services, or if this will go away you know, over the course of this next year, which means that our economy will bounce back on the services side, you know, less goods consumption and inflation no longer becomes an issue. So at the end of the day, COVID is really driving the course of the economy. And every time we think it isn't, we get something like Omicron that again reminds us that really COVID is in charge. If you control the pandemic, you really get a better sense of how will the economy evolve. Um, but that also involves not just vaccinating the US, it involves vaccinating the rest of the world. And this is where we've really lagged behind. The rest of the world has not been vaccinated to the same extent or with the vaccines that are of equal effectiveness as what we've had here. And so we've seen these strains come from other parts of the world and impact the global and US economy. All right. Well, Leo Feller, again, senior economist at the Anderson School of Management. All the best in terms of trying to predict the economy as time goes on. You have to do that because, of course, you're involved in the Anderson forecast. And we look forward to what you have to say in the future. And thanks very much for being with us. All right, Warren. Thanks so much. I appreciate it. Okay. I'm Warren Alney. This has been How the World Works. Join us again. Mm -hmm.